Welcome to Fifth Draw Wild, everybody. I'm your host, Matt, and before we get into the episode today, we just wanted to let you know this episode does have some audio issues on my end. Uh, we fixed it as well as we can, and I hope it's not too distracting for you. Also, we recently launched a new podcast called Hard Reboot. Jake Mason, Alan Sells, and myself reboot a public domain property once a month. Why don't you go check it out? The first episode is available on our website. And now, enjoy the episode. And joining us today is our guest, James. James, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Matt. James, why don't you kind of introduce yourself a little bit here. Um, Tell us kind of who you are, what you do. Uh, Sure, my name is James. I've uh, been a longtime portable game player. Game Boy was my first system. Got way back at at the beginning. Shared it around between... uh, three brothers which is interesting when you consider how small that original screen was and we were just like looking over each other trying to play it it's hard to imagine doing that now (laughs) yeah now in the day of a 70 inch plasma being the the norm you mentioned you mentioned our topic we're going to be talking about the uh the classic game boy the old gray brick and uh some of its closer related siblings there um so so i i have to ask what was your first game boy game my first Game Boy game was Super Mario Land 2, which technically, just due to the order of things, I got before the actual Game Boy, where it was at Christmas, and uh, it was a present to uh, myself and all my three brothers, and we opened that first and saw Super Mario Land 2. Wait, we don't have a Game Boy. What's this other present? Is it a Game Boy pack that had, that came with Tetris? Yes, it is. That was the uh, that was the exact same situation that I found mine in, was the... Yeah. Uh, the Game Boy Tetris combo pack, which Tetris still just we're not we're not going to get into it today because mm. Tetris kind of deserves its own space. Oh yes, but man, Tetris was some good stuff. Um, it it has still to this day improved my overall ability of being able to uh, pack any space with as much material as possible. Mm. Um, but. I, I also got Super Mario Land, six golden coins, um, with that first Christmas gift, along with that uh, horrible like, magnifier, double screen stereo oh, battery killer. God, I yeah, I had one of those too. That it look, I I I, I kind of loved it more than I probably should have because like I was into Transformers, so like any technology that could like shift and change places like immediately like plus plus to me. Oh yeah, and it like folded down real nice, had that light yeah. in it. Yeah, you pushed in out. your midlands, pulled up the speakers, compacted. It was great. It yeah. was awful. It, it, it ate AA batteries for lunch, but yeah, uh, it's a fantastic little thing. So it's it's appropriate that Super Mario World Land was our was our shared kind of first mm-hmm. Game Boy game um, because we're going to talk about that whole series. Yeah. So just kind of introduce people to it. What was the Super Mario Land series? So. With a new Nintendo platform, you got to have a new Mario game to go with it. Every time. Doesn't cut my mouth. But you had so you had Super Mario Land, which was developed by uh, Nintendo R and D One, who was responsible for a lot of the uh, early games on the Game Boy and some of the later ones. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with R- Nintendo R and D One, Nintendo div- early Nintendo divided up its uh, software development teams different ones. So you had R and D One was the first one, led by designer Gunpei Yokoi. You had R and D Two, which was by Genyo Takeda, if I remember his name right, mostly did hardware, but also did Punch-Out. And then you had 
R&D 3, which was given to Shigeru Miyamoto and would eventually become Entertainment Art and Design. So R&D 1 does, does a lot with the Game Boy. Like, uh, Gunpai Yokoi is responsible for designing the Game Boy, so his team ended up doing all this stuff. So they were do- so I think this was a this was basically the first like Mario platformer game that wasn't made by Miyamoto, and it's a weird one. It kind of shows, yeah. It shows that it's very different from the norm. Yeah, in this game, you step on turtles instead of being able to kick them; they explode. Yeah, yeah, they do. Little mm-hmm. jerks. Uh, it was also the character designs are also kind of noticeably changed in this one too. Mm-hmm. Like Mario looks kind of weird in this one comparatively. Yeah, like it's it looks like the NES game but off, which is an interesting thing. Like the the hardware of the Game Boy, I think if I remember correctly, this it's considered underpowered, but I think kind of comparable to Nintendo to the NES stats. So theoretically, you could directly port uh, a lot of NES games over with some changes. But that was actually kind of a bad idea to do without any changes because the screen is a lot smaller. So yeah. there's some games that have like big sprites that are like, oh, this looks like the NES game, but oh, you don't have a lot of room to move over. This wow. comes up a lot in the Mega Man games for Game Boy, which we're not going to talk about, but it's so worth noting. So they kind of like took like that basic 8-bit Mario sprite, but like kind of shrunk it a bit. And then it, it seems right until you like compare it to the NES. Like, oh, this is a lot smaller. Now, Super Mario Land had, I think, my favorite power-up of all time. You'll probably remember this, the uh, carrot that gave you the bunny ears. Super Mario Land 2 and the six golden coins. That was a weird game. Yeah, still by R&D 1, but, like, what a difference it made. Because, like, the first one was 89, because that's when the Game Boy came out. This one, I want to say, is 91-92. Yeah. And while Mario Land kind of looks like like original Super Mario Brothers, this one almost kind of looks like Super Mario World, which is impressive given the hardware it's on. Yeah, it's got a lot more shading, kind of a lot more texture. Um, the sprites still look weird. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, it reverted a little bit to the traditional Mario style, mm-hmm. but kept kind of the flavor of the first Super Mario Land is kind of what it felt like. Yeah, it's and for those I'm familiar with, like the plot of this game is... And this is weird. I remember this from the manual. Is while Nintendo was off in Sarasaland fighting Tangata in Super Mario Land, he have, apparently he has an island that he owns that was stolen, that was taken over by Wario, who came in and like hypnotized everyone. This game is also the first game to feature Wario, who was featured prominently in the commercials. Like I yeah. really remember those commercials from a kid, which like has like kind of a hypnosis screen with like Wario talking about like trying to hypnotize you like obey me don't collect the six golden coins don't get to the castle and I remember that sticking with me for a long time it's like what is this evil Mario and he's very scary well yeah. scary to a kid but yeah Mario Land 2 it has the carrot which is kind of a weird like kind of a weird take on like the flying powers where you drift slowly down like either you can hold it to go or you can tap it to like fall a little fast fall a little slower and mario gets these little bunny ears they are they are ridiculous it just kind of stretches that whole frame of mario out a good bit yeah yeah you can do some interesting stuff with that and all the yeah as i said like it's basically what if mario had like this island that has like it has uh this there are six zones to go with six golden coins you had the tree zone which is like this big tree so there's a lot of like 
lot of interesting stages like you're going like inside a tree like inside a tree and going up sap you're like going through a beehive there's the uh space zone which it's only like two level two levels plus a secret stage but it's interesting because you, you have like zero gravity and then like no gravity in one of yeah. them yeah yeah it was fantastic and you had that awesome spacesuit mario yeah yeah mario gets in a spacesuit and it's which is funny, like the like, oh yeah, he shouldn't be able to breathe, given given the fact that like, well, he doesn't breathe when he's underwater. Yeah, he should be fine, but okay, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Oh, and then probably the weirdest one was like the Mario Zone, which takes place in a giant mechanical Mario statue. Like, I don't know what's up with that. The thing creeped me out. Like, yeah. it would still creep me out to this day. Is you enter yeah. in his leg and you have to go up the whole body. Yeah, and each stage is like kind of. Like, the first one is a clockwork theme, but they all kind of have, like, a toy theme after that. Particularly the last one, which has a a Lego, which, like, you think is like, oh, it's Lego, but it's actually... And that, this I didn't find out for years. If you go back and, like, one thing, there's, like, a label on it that says, like, B&W on one of the block, the Lego-looking blocks, and, like, what's that? Apparently, that is actually a reference to a pre-electronic era, like, Nintendo toy product where they basically made their own Legos. Oh, really? There's a uh, blog that's called, I think, uh, Before Mario that delves into a lot of, like, Nintendo's uh, early toy and, like, some of their early, like, like basically pre-Famicom stuff. And they go into it, and, like, they, you know, it's weird seeing, like, Lego, Lego kits for, like, Gundam and stuff. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and it's an appropriate nod, because uh, Gunpa Yokei originally came up as a toy designer. Like, the story, as so the story goes... He was working uh, on his spare time. He was working on toys while working on Nintendo's assembly lines, and was found by former Nintendo president slash evil cyborg Kiroshi Yamuchi. And the toy he and got picked out, and that toy was made into the Ultra Hand, which is like one of those like hands you like you squeeze in and reach out to grab a ball. You see it referenced in Nintendo stuff, particularly the WarioWare games, which also made by R&D One. So you can see this kind of a through line through all of that. Let's uh, let's move on to the third entry in the series. Uh, Wario Land. Yeah, Super Mario Land 3, Wario Land. He's officially taken over. That one also had a pretty good commercial, kind of continuing the same theme, same hypnosis, like, okay, like, let's get all the treasure. I want to get steal the coins and big a bi- get a bigger castle than Mario. And the premise is, Wario hears that the brown sugar pirates have captured a statue of uh, Princess Toadstool, since she was, that's what she was at the time, and decides to get it back, not on the goodness heart, but to get the reward. Oh, yes. So, of course. Yeah, you play through uh, Kitchen Island and go through all these worlds, like, beating up pirates and collecting a bunch of coins and finding treasure, and it's it's fun. Like, it has, like, both it and, like, Super Mario 2 have, like, really good world maps. I feel like that's a thing that, like, has kind of gotten lost from Super Mario games. Like, they have world maps, but, like, eh, it's just a thing, but, like, it actually feels like a place. Like, there's a good, like, when you go into, like, a stage on the beach, it's just like, well, this looks like a beach stage. Like, oh, here's a... And then here's a beach stage has, like, boxes and stuff on the map. Like, oh, there are boxes and things. And, like, kind of give you a sense of progression. Like, I feel... Yeah. a lot With a lot of, like, newer Mario's, like, the new Super Mario is, like... They'll stick to, like, a theme, but, like, there isn't... You don't always get a connection between, like... The, like, oh, the, like, okay, maybe this is a bridge stage. But, like, not... You don't get a lot beyond that. And it's really interesting. Yeah. But yeah, also, like, Wario is... They do a great job in differentiating him from being Mario. Like, it's... 
they kind of like a good way of like conveying his character through mechanics like Wario Wario doesn't actually get hurt by touching enemies unless they have like a spear or something. Like there are some basic enemies like Wario can just walk up to and they'll just bounce off of him and like flip on their back like flipping their legs kind of helplessly. And he doesn't beat them by jumping on top. He beats them by like doing a body slam attack that just like knocks them flying off the screen. <laughs> and of course instead of eating mushroom, he eats garlic. Oh yeah. Cuz yeah, cuz he's gross and his nose kind of looks like a bulb of garlic. I never really noticed that no, but like I have a picture of him up. <laughs> I'm sure that's I'm sure that's not a coincidence. No, nothing is a coincidence in these games. Yeah, and no, it's fun. It was also like it was also like parts of it were like kind of stressful. Like there is a one stage, the first stage of Stove Canyon, which is like a fire world, as you might guess. Like I remember that scaring me as a kid because the first stage has like a lava wall like chasing you like you've probably seen that in other games before oh, yeah, and, like yeah. i remember being kind of freaking out and like even though it was like going back it's like super slow moving but i remember like oh no but like that actually led me to like like well i'm kind of scared of this so i'll go and play some other stages and finding like another hidden world like there's a completely optional stage in the game which is a uh, uh, sherbert sherbert island where it's like a glacier off the coast which has an optional boss which is like a boxing penguin <laughs> would you get art some oh another thing to mention is like kind of keeping with the theme is like whenever you beat a boss less like coins just rain from the ceiling and you have to like scramble to get them that feels that feels right i mean wario is basically yeah. a pirate all on his own already yeah yeah so uh do you want to talk about the end since that's also pretty interesting yeah 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 i mean it's not really spoiling so you get to the end you fake captain syrup who you find out is like a lady pirate, which is they kind of pulled like a Sam, like a Samus thing, sort of. Since I remember in the manual, they described like they either didn't use pronouns or described Captain Serp as a he, and then who like summons a giant genie to attack you, which is an interesting <laughs> fight. Yeah, you have to like throw the lamp until it like summons a cloud. You can climb up to like bop him on the head. Then after you like do that and beat like the like the pal like the. Uh, Castle Syrup, which is a like, big kind of skull fortress, blows up, reveals this giant statue of Princess Toadstool. And you're like, yay, you got this. And then suddenly, Mario comes up in a helicopter, grabs it with a magnet, and flies off. And you're just like, Mario, you jerk! You just stole this thing. So then, Mario rubs the lamp, and the genie is willing to grant him his wish in exchange for money. Okay. It's a weird non-voice thing. So then it goes to your, like, because the game keeps track of all the money and all the treasures you get. But there's, like, uh, I want to say, like, 16 or so treasures throughout the game. And it totals up. And depending on how well you do, how many that you give them, determines the level you get. Where I think the lowest level is, like, literally a birdhouse. And you're, like, <laughs> a kind of a rambler. And then you get a cat, and you can get a castle. Which for years, I can thought, oh, that was the best ending. It wasn't until, like, a long time that I think I was like looking through a site that with ending is like, oh, there's a tire level. Like, what? And this is kind of tricky to do because you have to get all the treasures and you have to not max out the money, but you like, you have to max out the money you get, which you can do by getting all the treasures and getting, I think, 100,000 coins. It's whatever gets the last digit is one. Whatever you get, like, the treasures will make up all of the difference. And if you do okay. that, Wario gets a planet with his face on it. A whole planet. Okay. I kid you not. It like the <laughs> screen scrolls up into blackness in this space, and then there's like 
a planet or like a moon with Wario's face on it, and like that's the ending. That's fantastic. Uh, I guess that's the non-canon ending since Wario Land Two. He just has a castle, but uh, I guess that makes sense. I, I I would love to have seen that pop up in like uh, Super Mario Galaxies. It's just like a <laughs> oh god, the Wario planet. That would be great. That'd be great. Just like a little like teaser in there, Easter egg thing. So we're gonna we're gonna bump down a little bit. Um, we're uh-huh. gonna move on to our next game. Um, right. And you know, people listening are probably gonna notice a trend here. We're gonna hit several popular franchises, mm-hmm. especially popular in the '80s and '90s. Um, mm-hmm. We're gonna talk about Metroid Two. Yep, Metroid Two, which I was looking on the uh, cutting room floor, which they described it as the game between the first one and Super Metroid, which is kind of accurate. It's a game I like, and it's my first Metroid game. Though I, I'm not gonna like you're not. I'm not going to drop any troop bombs like, hey, this game's better than Super Metroid. It's not. Uh-huh. But it's still good and really important. Like, it was not the first game I personally owned, but, like, it was one of the first ones I personally remember starting out, where this was... This game, I think, came out in 92. And there was, like, a... Kellogg's was doing a promotion where, like, I think if you send in a proof of purchase and, like, some money, you could get a Game Boy game. And they had a bunch of them lined up on the side. I think they had, like... Super Mario Land, Radar Mission, and a couple of those. But the one that really caught my eye was Metroid 2, which I don't know if I'd ever heard of Metroid before that point. But it has, like, if you've never seen the cover, it has, like, Samus kneeling down the armor and just, like, smoking gun. And it, like, looked completely different from, like, all any other game was. Because, you know, I mostly had, like, Tetris, Mario, and, like, mostly cartoony stuff. So I have this, like, kind of realistic, like, robot-looking person on there. It's like... Like, oh, yeah, I gotta get this. And eventually my parents, like, I think surprised me for it as, as a gift. So I got it. And I remember pouring over the manual, which, uh, so I actually, which does refer to Samus as a girl in that one. So I actually got the surprise from me completely spoiled without even knowing. So like, oh, oh Samus wow. is a girl. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's crazy. But yeah, no. And so I played that and like, oh, this is great. Like exploring in caves. And then I ran into the first Alpha of Metroid and, like, got scared and turned it off and would not complete it. It's, <laughs> It seems silly now, but, like, if you ever go to it, like, you have... The basic music is, like, this theme called... I think Tunnel Runner is what everyone calls it. It's, like, this nice little heroic theme going on. And then when you do the Metroid, it, like, has this, like, this, like, da-da-dun sting for, like, the Metroid mutates into this, like, little thing that flies at you. And, like, it just scared the crap out of me as a kid. Like, I couldn't <laughs> deal with that. Like I couldn't, I couldn't play that for. Like I would go back to it and get scared and like stop and just like ah, I want to get further in this game, but I can't beat this first Metroid. I eventually got further into it. like I there was a uh, there was another kid in our neighborhood. It was an older kid who had uh, named Logan. I, I'm not in touch with him anymore, but like I figured to do it for the thing. But like I ended up swapping games with him, so I played a bunch of games I didn't own, like uh, Kirby's Dreamland two and a, and a couple others. And, like, he managed to get past. So, like, I would go into, like, his cleared file and, like, see, like, explore into parts of the game I wasn't able to get to. <laughs> yeah. He was also cool because he had, like, a like a custom modded Game Boy where he had uh, replaced the uh, the face buttons. Like, there he had swapped A and B for, like, different colored buttons and a different D-pad that had a hole in the middle so you could put, like, a little thumbstick thing to, like, control it. Huh. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of, like, modded Game Boys now. And I've always kind of wanted to get one, but I've never had the money. 
<laughs> so it took me oh yeah it took me oh so metroid 2 always stuck with me for years it's and going back to it it's not as scary obviously because like oh yeah the alpha metrics are actually really easy yeah but like it's very atmospheric like i think it got like it gets ging, dinged a lot of times for there's a lot of music that's just like very sparse and just kind of atmospheric ambient sounds which and i get that but like and the music it does kind of like give it like this kind of like creepy factor where you're just hunting down Metroids and they give you around any corner, particularly because the game feels very claustrophobic because Samus has a pretty big sprite. It's not as big as our NES one, but it still means like a lot of times with Metroid fights, you're like closer than you want to be to fight them, which is hard with the later ones. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, I also feel it's an important stepping stone between like Metroid 1 and Metroid 2 because you get like, like, Pretty much all the items in there, like, appear in every other Metroid game after that, except for the spider ball, because it kind of breaks the game. And, like, from a plot thing, like, Super Metroid ends up being, Metroid 2 being, ends up really important, because if you remember, like, the opening of Super Metroid, like, she goes and exterminates all the Metroids, and then brings back the baby Metroid, which is, like, the most important part of, like, Super Metroid. Yeah. So it's, it's worth, it's worth playing. It's, it's, uh, much more linear, which helps the fact that it's, like, there's no still no map and like a lot of the areas move look kind of the same. Uh, there was a good fan remake called uh, AMR2, another Metroid 2 remake, which might be a little hard to find because it got like uh, taken off the web by Nintendo. But if you look, and you'll probably be able to find it. That's a that's a pretty it's a pretty good remake. Some stuff I find a bit superfluous, but like it's a pretty good job and they make the Metroids more interesting. So yeah, that's Metroid 2. Yeah. Okay underappreciated even if it's not the best one and uh what's uh what's our third game we're looking at today uh let's see the third game is donkey kong 94 which is no joke one of my favorite games ever made so yeah so donkey kong like it's it, technically it's just donkey kong but like most people circles will either call it like donkey kong gb or donkey kong 94 to distinguish from the original arcade donkey kong yeah Obviously released in 1994, which coincides with not only, like, and I didn't realize this until I was doing some research for this, it coincides with uh, when the uh, NES was officially discontinued, which also meant that uh, NES, like the NES uh, port of Donkey Kong and Don- Donkey Kong Jr. was discontinued, you get this, you get, like, a remake of it, which also coincides with the brand spanking new Super Game Boy, which, uh... For those who are not familiar with, it was a uh, add-on for your Super Nintendo that allowed you to play get play Game Boy games on it. It was in the, color. Uh, yeah, it was the Sega style, like plug a cartridge into another cartridge deal. Yeah, or I guess color with like air quotes since it gets a little in- complicated. Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar with the Game Boy, it outputs into its color output is technically four shades of gray, or four shades of like greenish yellow if you if you play it on the original screen yeah so what the super game boy could do is it could like swap those palettes for different colors but like you couldn't do like full colored stuff because you know it that just took no processing but like that said donkey kong 94 looks really good on it like it has really good color choices on it uh on the maps, it actually is full color because of the way it worked is it could is it could draw like a separate palette by like basically 
doing a little separate box around spaces, but it didn't really work. And like it only worked with static backgrounds. So you and that you have full colored maps. If you ever played uh, Pokemon on Game Boy on Super Game Boy, that's why like the Pokemon sprites are colored and why the light bars are actually colored. Okay. But like Donkey Kong ninety four is is great. So it starts off just like seeming like oh this is a remake of original Donkey Kong going through like the original uh, four stages. It adds in a lot of the features like that got taken on the NES one. So you have like the how high do you get? The intro where like Donkey Kong uh, kidnaps Pauline and like smashes up that first stage. So the girders are all twisted. Yeah. And the uh, uh, 50 meter stage, which is like the cement factory stage. Oh, I love that but, one. Like, that one's fun. Yeah. But then the twist is you get to the end, you drop all the rivets, Donkey Kong falls on his head, and you're reunited like hard on screen. But then Donkey Kong like flips over smashes the ground the bridge falls over she grabs Pauline and starts running away again which leads <laughs> into like the main game which is like over like like about 100 levels of like kind of puzzle platforming stages and it's all great where you have like two kind of stages you have like the basic puzzle stages where Mario has to get like a key to a door which is which is like very reminiscent of like you know different puzzle platformer games. It borrows elements from like, like uh, Donkey Kong Jr., the original Donkey Kong, and even like a little bit of Super Mario Brothers too, because like you can ride on enemies and pick up stuff and throw them. Okay. But it's yeah, and it's really int- yeah. It uh, it also adds a lot to the mechanics. Where if you ever play like the arcade Donkey Kong, it's pretty stiff, and Mario dies pretty easily. Like if he falls too far, he dies. This one, it's much more opened up. It's much more forgiving. Like, Mario can still die from falling, but it's a lot harder. And it's actually kind of interesting. They they I have, they implement it in a fun way, where depending on how far you fall, it'll do different things. Like, if you fall a little bit too far, he'll take a tumble, but be all fine. And you fall further, he'll, like, do a face plant, and he'll have, like, the anime, like, legs sticking the, in the air, twitching before he gets back on his feet. And if you fall <laughs> really far, he lands on his head and dies. And you can actually tell how far you're falling, since his sprite will actually turn in the air. And it's just like little details like that make it a very polished. He has like tons of moves, like probably like the most moves than like Mario's ever had. Like it's it's weird it's weirdly comparable to like Super Mario 64, since he can do like these handstand jumps, like a uh, backflip, and you get to get these abilities all from, like, the beginning of the game. Like, they're introduced by these, like, interstitial sequences, which are, like, kind of a combination of, like, how, like, old arcade games would have intermissions, or, like, black and white stuff like the pitfalls of Pauline, which is where Pauline gets her name from. It'll have, like, you know, Donkey Kong getting ready to, like, smash Mario, but it'll do a backflip to get out of the way. Like, uh, Mario will, uh, like, get across a pit and have to do a special jump to do it. They're pretty amusing, and you get them, like, every five levels since... I'm sorry, I said there were, like, two types of stages, but I didn't say what the other ones were, which are Donkey Kong stages, which those are more like the original arcade game where you have to get up to a platform while Donkey Kong is doing stuff, like either like causing stuff to fall from the ceiling, pulling switches that change, like, conveyor belts and stuff, or throwing mm-hmm. these mushrooms, which in, like, a neat twist, if you've been playing Mario long, make you shrink. Oh, wow, that is... That doesn't come back for a long time in the Mario games. Yeah, yeah. And you also get stuff like, eventually, like, you get, like, Donkey Kong Jr. starts showing up, which, uh, this is not the last time he shows up in a video game. 
but certainly the biggest thing where he'll do, like he'll like be a miniature Donkey Kong in like regular stages doing some of the same stuff and messing messing around. He'll be like he'll like he can be a big troll because he'll be like getting ready to do stuff and then he'll like throw one of those mushrooms at like a straight beeline at you and it'll shrink you and immediately mess you up and cause you to drop your key. Oh. Yeah. Well, uh, and this is getting a little off track, but isn't there isn't there a pretty strong fan theory that in the the Donkey Kong Country games that the main Donkey Kong there is Donkey Kong Jr. Yes, if I remember correctly, like if you like play like this, the implication is Cranky Kong is original Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr. is Donkey Kong. I don't think it's ever explicitly said, but I believe that's what's rare intention. I don't believe Nintendo believes in that, and certainly okay, I think they would deny that. Nintendo also gave us the Hyrule Historia. Yeah. So. Well this, well, this also does some weird stuff with the story, which I'm I'm gonna talk about the ending because again, this is like the most thing I really remember of playing this game in my childhood is. So you chase Donkey Kong through all these worlds. You chase him through like like through the city, through a jungle, on a ship, on a plane, through a desert, through a mountain, across a glacier, and ends in a tower that has Donkey Kong's head on top of it. Okay. And this is kind of the hardest part of the game because every stage is a Donkey Kong stage. He's always there. <laughs> he's always doing something. Yeah, and it's only eight, eight stages, but like, also the uh, the the fourth stage, which is like the halfway point, you end up trapping Donkey Kong Jr. by the same way that you freed Donkey Kong in Donkey Kong Jr. the arcade game with the chains and pushing the keys up the chains. Which is an interesting callback, but also kind of messed up. It's like, you capture him the same way he freed his dad in the game? What's with that, Nintendo? Aww. But then you get the last four stages, and there's like this... The music changes, it's this super intense theme. And then you get to the top and you fight Donkey Kong. In this battle where you have to... Which was stumped me for ages as a kid, because normally when you fight him in a boss stage, he throws barrels, and eventually the barrels will just like stop so you can pick them up. And in the last stage, none of them stop. They just keep going. And there's a cutscene before that that shows if you... Mario does a headstand, and you can kick stuff while he's there. And that's when you need to flip the barrels. But I kind of missed that when kids, so I got stuck in that for a long time. And this is before GameFAQs. So I'm just like, how do I do it? And then, like, I think I did it on accident. After just, like, numerous tries. I think I even timed out a couple times trying to figure it out. Like, all right, I got it. And then eventually you get three barrels... Donkey Kong falls over and just like, yay, a minute with Pauline, like, game is over! And it shows, like, a cutscene of him falling down the tower and like, yay! And then it returns to the level select screen just like, what the heck, where are the credits? Is this game broken? <laughs> What's going on? And then I notice, like, oh wait, the level counter's increased. Huh, that's weird. Hit A, and then, like, the DK head on the tower, like, went from frowning to, like, doing that toofy grin smile and just like, oh no. And then it cuts to where like Mario and Don- Mario and Pauline are like standing on a, on a, on like a platform, and suddenly like there's a like a loud impact sound, a bunch of mushrooms like, and she flies off the screen. A bunch of mushrooms fly up, and then you hear like a growing noise, and like what's that? And then suddenly, giant Donkey Kong head pops up. <laughs> it's it's great. He tries to smash you with his fists, and you have to like get barrels to throw at him. It it's great, and like that just blew my mind as a kid, cause like. Obviously, like, everyone knows, like, like, like the this-is-not-my-final-form trope from a video game. You, like, a lot of times, it's like, okay, I beat this, what's the second form? I hadn't really, I hadn't really seen much of that. I don't know if that was the first game that ever did it, but certainly it was, like, the one that stuck with me. Just like, there's another thing! <laughs> yeah. 
So eventually, when you beat that, and here's the weird connection thing. So, like, the final ending cutscene has them, like, in what is clearly, like, the, like, the Mushroom Kingdom from Mario Land, from Super Mario Brothers. There's, like, a pipe and a mystery block in the background. Pauline <laughs> gets a, gives, like, a different mushroom that grows more into, like, Mario, like, like, Super Mario. And then Donkey Kong shows up and you, like, kind of catch him and, like, you have a photo at the end and just, like, so wait, is this implied, like, he went straight from Donkey Kong to the Mushroom Kingdom? That, what? How does that work with Super Mario, like, Super Mario World 2, where he's a baby in the Mushroom Kingdom? What's going on in, t- like, it's, I don't really, like, try to, like, figure out a Mario timeline. I figure that's folly, but it's just, like, it's so weird. But yeah, <laughs> Donkey Kong 94, it's a great game. It's one I feel everyone should play. If you can play it on a Super Game Boy, it's worth it, just because, again, it looks really good. They do really good stuff with the palettes. Uh, they, uh, one of the other things they can do is you can load sound samples that the Game Boy couldn't play. So, like, Paul, like in, uh, Pauline's Cries are, like, sampled for, straight from the arcade game, and then the final music is actually, like, played on the Super NES when you, on a Super Game Boy. It's oh, wow. really cool. Yeah, the Super Game Boy is really interesting. There's, like, a pretty good analysis on it by, uh, Christine Love, who is, uh, a indie developer on her blog, which is called, uh, okay, uh, she says, Frick the Super Game, uh, Frick the Super Game Boy. Except that's not what the word she uses. Okay. Yeah. It's, it, people can Google it. It's fine. Yeah. No. It's, it's a, it's a very good breakdown, like, talking about, like, what thing, what, what it could do, what games really took advantage of it, and what games really didn't. Yeah. I recommend that if you're, like, kind of interested in, like, kind of the bits and crunchy, like, how did this thing actually work? <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's let's shift over from there to our fourth game, um, and this is a game that I know nothing about. Um, Ooh, yeah, I don't even think I had ever heard of it until until we started asking people to suggest these. So yeah. um, we're going to be talking about survival kids. Yeah, that that's what I kind of push for because like pretty much all the games we talk about are like they're obscure relative to other games, but like if you like. Google, like, a list of, like, top ten Game Boy games. You're going to get Mario Land on it. You're going to get Donkey Kong. You're going to get Link's Awakening when we talk about it. Spoiler. But you might not get Survival Kids. And Survival Kids is kind of just, like, represents how, how like, you can get weird stuff on the Game Boy. This is a game published by Konami in, uh, I forgot to look up the year. But it's a game, but it's a combination Game Boy Color original game. So, after 96. Okay. I remember getting this as a kid. I got it recommended by a site called... Uh, it was a Game Boy fan site called DMG Ice. I'm not sure if it still exists. But they, like... I got, like, a lot of weird Game Boy suggestions from them. Like this and, like, a game called Great Greed, which I'm not going to talk about. But Survival Kids... I remember getting this and, like, being described as a survival RPG and getting it and not really understanding it at first. Because, basically, like, you're this kid. You can either pick if you're a boy or a girl... And, like, you're going on a tri- adventure with your dad, on a trip with your dad on a ship, and then suddenly it gets shipwrecked, and you wake up on this island. And suddenly you have to survive on this island. What? Yeah. So you get in, like, it, as a kid, it was just kind of overwhelming, because you had, like, you have, like, a life gauge, but you also have a hunger gauge, a fatigue gauge, and a thirst gauge. And so you have to kind of bounce all these things. Like, you can eat food on the island, but, like... You have to get stuff to be able to cook it, if, like particularly if you want to eat meat. Stuff can spoil if you leave it too long, so you have to do it. And like, 
again, that was a lot when I was doing a kid, but now going back to this, like I hadn't really touched it again, but like I went back to it as an adult, I realized like, oh, this is kind of like a roguelike. It has has a lot of the same elements. Like there's a lot of items that have the description will be blank unless you try one. And then once it does it, you'll know what it is. And they're like, okay, this mushroom's poisonous. This is this grass is a spice I can use to preserve my meat so it'll last longer. Oh wow. Yeah, it's it's not compl- it's not it doesn't go full rogue like like the world like the world is not randomly generated. Okay. So you can learn, but yeah, it's it's very like it's a game that like I don't know if I get, how many people know, but it feels like it could be largely influential because there are like tons of games like this today. Like I remember thinking it's like oh this is kind of like old don't old school don't starve. So it's a bit more direction. Yeah, and there's, there, there's a whole genre of these nowadays. Yeah, yep. and s- sadly, I was not able to finish it because I do own this game on cartridge. But like, the day after I played it, I went back. It's like, okay, let's see if I can finish and get off this island. I found out like the battery and I died, and I lost all my saves, which oh, was no annoying. Just like you could have done this earlier, and then I kind of just emulated it. But yeah, it's it is an interesting game, and it eventually. It got it got a sequel that didn't come out here, but eventually spawned the Lost in Blue series, which came out on DS. Hmm. The, yeah, which is also seems weird because like there were like three games, but like looking up on Wikipedia, like every game was made by a different developer, which seems unusual to me. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, that's usually a bad sign. Yeah, but yeah, it's also I will. Get, the other thing also it kind of reminds me is like, wait, is this like? Did Kojima play this and like, oh, I should do the like, I put this in a Metal Gear game because I immediately thought about Snake Eater. Oh yeah. Because I because you gotta like, kill stuff and eat it and have to preserve it. I'll, I will also give it credit that like you have to merge items and it's not always clear what you do, but at least if you merge items that don't work, it doesn't use them up. Like I've played games that like will have like a merging crafting thing and it's, like if you merge something incorrectly, it just gives you like a mistake and just like, well, I guess I'm going to look up a guide because I don't feel like experimenting if, if it's going to just punish yeah. me if it happens but yeah it's it is an interesting game like it's if you like it some people might find it stressful just because having to do balance a lot of factors and so long as you pay attention you should be good like i my, the hardest part i had is at one point like a monsoon strikes and you have to uh and wrecks like the house you can uh, go into because like the way you replenish fatigue is you have to uh, is you have to uh, rest at a spot, either the hack, the this shack that you find pretty quickly, or like there'll be like uh, trees you can like rest in, and you have a choice between like fixing that and doing the raft. And I decided to fix that. And what I I wasn't really paying attention to my stats, and cause I guess this is probably like, kind of a flaw is it didn't is doing these sort of actions like even though it seems simple like okay I go explain it a. It used up. I get used up a lot of food. I guess to to correspond to like, oh yeah, if you're like nailing a house together, like that would use up food. And I didn't notice that. So like when it's like, okay, I'm done. I'm ready to sail off this island. Why the hell is my health like at ten? Oh crap! I only have like one piece of preserved meat. Crap. Oh, there's <laughs> gonna be an earthquake in a few days. Uh, maybe I should have gone back to a save. So yeah, it's one that I'm, I'm probably actually gonna try to finish like sometime after this. There's multiple endings from what I understand, which. I've oh, actually wow. avoided spoiling myself on that, so I don't know what happens. Like, does it depend on how you get rescued? Also, you get a monkey as a compartment after he, like, kind of is a jerk to you most of the thing. Like, he steals your backpack at one point. You have to go through, like, a Lost Woods-type deal to, like, find him. Okay. Yeah, so Survival Kids is, like, it is a very interesting game. And, like, 
and not one a lot of people, games talk about. Like it's, but worth tracking down. Yeah, that sounds amazing for a Game Boy game. Like, yeah, there are some concepts there that are are still considered you know like revolutionary today. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a huge like way before its time kind of game. Man, I need to I need to find that and find a way to give that thing a play. That sounds great. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna go from that. Um, we're gonna head into our fifth game here in a second. Um, do want to give a quick little shout out here. Um, we are not gonna be talking about the Pokemon games just because. Listen, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know what Pokemon's all about. I would be I would be shocked if you didn't have that already in the docket. Uh, I mean, jo- Josh Nichols from the uh, Pokemon World Tour podcast and from the Morphin Grid came on and we talked a whole lot of Pokemon. Um, mm. But that that whole thing is such a phenomenon now that if you're not aware of yeah. red, blue, and kind of yellow, um, go uh, go fix yourself. Yeah. Go find that. They're on the virtual console right now. Yeah. I will say, the one thing about Pokemon I will say, just to kind of relate it back to my personal experience with the Game Boy, is I remember... God, I can't remember how I first heard about Game Boy. I think it was because I, I didn't have Nintendo Power. Oh, uh, no. I probably was going on the... I think it may have also been from DMGS. Talking about, like, hey, there's this weird monster game that's coming from New Japan. And, like, it's that one thing that they had the seizure anime thing from. So I want to say I actually just bought it off the shelf before it became super popular. And I remember, like, <laughs> my brothers and I were, like, super interested. And we were passing it around. And the thing we didn't realize is that it only had one save slot. So when we like we'd go and like oh like play and like play a whole bunch, get the Pokedex, beat Brock, and just like it was like let me play. Like okay, yeah, they started over and didn't and save and like did this a couple times. Where I was like, wait, where's our all of our other games? Oh no! Oh, that's the worst. Yeah, I've apparently I'm not the only one that did this because I actually was listening to a different podcast and one of the hosts was reminiscing of Pokemon saying they did the same thing. I'm like, oh good, it wasn't just me for being a dumb dumb and not knowing that it only had one save. Oh man, those games were huge and as as it has been talked mm-hmm. about in a lot of other places, they were held together with spit and duct tape. So Oh yeah. I'm sure if they tried to include a second save slot, the whole thing would have exploded. Yeah, like if you ever get a chance like look up like some of the speed some of the speed runs of like original Pokemon from like uh, awesome games done quick, particularly the glitch runs, they'll do some bizarre stuff with that game. There's some witchcraft deep in the heart of those games. Um, yeah, and you could still do those in the Virtual Console versions, which shocked me. Yeah, they did not change anything. They were just like, eh, it's fine. Yeah. Check it out. Um, so we're not going to talk a lot about those. In fact, we're not going to talk any more about them. But what we are going to talk about is the game that... No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. I think is the best game that ever came out on the original Game Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is The Legend of Zelda... Link's Awakening. Yes. My favorite Zelda game, as I say it, and you see this in a Bow Wow t-shirt, That's which I believe fantastic. was a uh, a Yeti shirt for, for uh, I think, Awesome Games Done Quick, or Summer Games Done Quick last year. I got, because, like, you see a lot of Zelda shirts, you don't see many that are specifically for Link's Awakening. No. Which is, this is this is an interesting game. It is my first, the first Zelda game that I owned, I, pl- like, my system for growing up was a Game Boy, but obviously I played other things. So, like, I would occasionally play little bits of, like, Zelda 1, Zelda 2, little bits of, of, like, Link to the Past. 
But, like, I never got a chance to, like, sit down. This was the first one. It was mine. And I could, well, shared with my brothers. And got to play through the whole thing. And it was, it was a very interesting world. It was, like, nothing I'd really see, like, nothing I'd really had a chance to experience before. Since it was a large world to explore and just, like, a very, a very complicated world. And a very weird world. Yeah, and let's let's talk about that weirdness because mm. that's kind of the underpinning of the whole game. And yeah. this is probably going to be the one time when I really say this and mean this seriously. If you have not played Link's Awakening, maybe go do that before you finish this. Yeah. Um, because there's kind of some big stuff that you don't get until the very end, and even then some stuff that they don't really ever tell you exactly what's yeah. going on yeah it's i i made a list of like all the really weird things in this game so yeah it has yeah so there's like a first of all like there like there are cameos in the games but this one has i think more than any and it's very weird like things that are in this game uh as enemies you can fight shy guys goombas piranha plants sheep jeeps boos and bloopers if i remember correctly Yep. There is an enemy that is basically an evil Kirby. He tries to suck you in and spits yeah, you out. Yeah, he's a little jerk. See, as said from the shirt, there are, like there is a uh, villager who has bow wows, which are ba- which are basically chain chomps. One of them you can get as a temporary partner who will eat anything, like basically eat any enemy on screen. Yep. And uh, let's see what else. Oh yeah, there's also. Uh, Wart from Super Mario Brothers 2 is in there? Yeah. It was called Maru for some reason. I don't know if that's his Japanese name. Probably could have looked that up. Let's see. You can get a Yoshi doll? You can. It's a pain. Will Wright is in there, technically? Yeah, as uh, his Mr. Wright persona from Super NES SimCity, and I believe it plays the music from Super NES SimCity in, in his house. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and then probably the most obscure one is Richard. I don't who is know that this? One. Uh, he's the prince, like who has the castle. You have to get the golden leaves for, and has all okay. these frogs in his thing. Yeah, yeah. He is from a game called uh, Karu no Tame no Nikane wa Naru. I don't know if I got that right, but it's transliterated as "For Whom the Frog Bell Tolls," which is an early game, which is a Game Boy game, I think made by mostly the same people. Okay, I've, I've read that it has the same engine. And, like, it's an adventure where you're doing this thing. And, like, Richard is the rival Prince character from that game. It's <laughs> very it's very weird. Like, I watched a partial translated playthrough, and, like, it opens up with, like, you, like, going around just, like, like oh, you have zero money. He's like, no, I'm a prince. I have a million, mo-, like, all the money. And, like, your money gauge just jumps up to, like, 5,000. And then, like, you pay it all to, like, a guy to, like, give you a boat to transport to an island. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, I use all of It's like, well, no, I always have more. It's it's <laughs> weird. Like the the main character actually showed up in as an assist trophy in Smash Brothers. If you ever got like this, like little guy who turned into a snake and attack thing, that's from this game. Okay. So, yeah. So huh. Richard is in. Yeah, Richard is in there. Like gives you a sub quest to get to one of the things, and it like it has music from that game in there. It, but it's like a thing. Like you're obviously not gonna know, like. I didn't know when I first played that. Yeah. Oh, and that's yeah. what I love about this game. Like the whole, the whole core concept is Link is sailing on a boat mm-hmm. to go rescue Zelda. Um, Not actually true. I'm... Like, no, no. Like it's 
like it's the story of this is actually like like this is Link after he's defeated Ganon and just like well I don't have anything to do and like people are worried like oh we'll be ready if something else happens so he decides to go on a journey of self discovery and then like a storm happens and gets wrecked on this island well well wrecked on this island in heavy air quotes ah yeah like we'll 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 get into that yeah so I subscribe to one to one theory of this whole thing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. curious if we have the same theory or whether we're gonna have a debate at the end. We'll we'll see when we get there. So so Link right. goes on this journey, gets shipwrecked on the island, mm-hmm. um, and wakes up and is given his quest. Yeah, yeah. He wants to get off this island, and everyone's like, "There's no way to get off this island. Like, there's no outside world." And eventually, he runs into this. Like, like you, it it has a really cool opening where you start off like, you get you you're found by this woman named Marine who is uh described as like she looks like Zelda, mm-hmm. it, like it's never directly addressed why, but you can make some intuitions depending on the end, and like her and her father Terran like give you like your shield, and you go down to the beach and like find your sword, but as you do it, this owl comes and says like, hey, if you want to get off this place, you need to wake the windfish and like get the innocence like let's do this stuff. Yeah, it's a uh, oh the windfish in his uh-huh. giant egg at the top of a mountain. Yep, yeah, which is uh I don't think it is like the name is the island's like Koholint Island if I remember correct. I I played this game well, but like I've recently, but like it's it's hard to remember some of the names. Like yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, it's it's a it's like a very dense world. Like it's very reminiscent of Zelda One since like it has like the same kind of like flip screen movement like. You go to the edge and it moves over, mm-hmm. and you you actually have a lot of like options you can do. Where like NES Zelda, like A was always the sword, and like B is like other items. I guess that's always true in other Zelda games. But this one, like, you can assign A and B to like any item, so you can do some interesting yeah. combos. Like you don't even always have to have the sword equipped. Yeah, you can do a lot of great stuff with that with that system, yeah. and it also gave you a whole lot of freedom in kind of. Like where you wanted to go, right? You could get to a large chunk of the island yeah. right off the bat. Yeah, it's true because like this was another game I kind of got stuck on as a kid, where in the uh, second dungeon called Bo- uh, Bottle Grotto, like this is after you get you Bow Wow, which you have to rescue from like a gang of moblins, and then like when you go back, so it's like his owner's just like, oh, just t- just take him on a walk. You like go to the go to like the uninhabitable swamp. He really likes that place, which is where the dungeon is. But I actually yeah. got stuck because like some like I really like how like kind of weird and cryptic some of the text in the game. But like this is one that kind of stumped me, where I couldn't get the final key. Where and, like the clue was like first defeat the imprisoned polis pole's voice. Last, Alfasos. And I had no idea what that meant. If you played, like, the older Zelda games, you might know, like, wait, isn't Paul's voice like the rabbit enemy and, like, the skeleton and the skeleton enemy? You'd be right. But I didn't know that. So I got <laughs> stuck on that for a while. I'm just like, what does it do? So, like, well, I can't do any more in this dungeon. I'm gonna go. And, like, you get the uh, power bracelet, which allows you to lift rocks. And then you can, like, explore a huge chunk of the game. And it's... And, like, really, like, they actually were kind of prepared for that. Because, like, like, you can go into, like, see, like, Richard, who is, like, triggers the subquest to get to the third dungeon. And he's like, Oh, what are you doing with this beast? Like, let's let's talk about this once you get away. There is a monkey which you need to talk to get to a bridge. But like, when you get to the monkey with Bow Wow, you're like, oh wait, what are you doing? You mongrel, let's fight! And ends up fighting and like running away. 
Yeah, they they yeah. were they were really good with their game design on this. Like the story yeah. does really well. Mm-hmm. Just kind of across yeah, the lots... different options. Yeah, there's like lots of stuff you kind of have to discover on your own, like the seashell mansion, where like you there's this item called like secret seashells, where like it is like a secret seashell. If you get enough of these, it says something good will happen. Doesn't tell you what the good thing happens, and eventually no. you'll find like oh seashell mansion. You go in there and like. Oh, there's a bar it'll go up? And like, oh, I guess it's based on seashells. What happens if I get a lot of them? And eventually, if you get 20, you get the level 2 sword. There's nothing, there's nothing in game that explicitly tells you that, but, like, you can discover your own. They actually did change it in the DX version, which we'll probably also talk about, where the mansion now talks to you and says, like, oh, you should definitely get more secret seashells. It'll get you something good. And, like, which I understand why they did it, but at the same time, it's like... Like I'm like ah, I kind of like the mystery of it. it. It's that old school game design that was just like we're not going to yeah. help you. We're not going to help you at all. Here's yeah. the world. Go figure it out. Yeah, that was another game. Like Logan kind of figured it out for us. Like I traded him in. Like oh yeah, like you need to kill these enemies in that horse game. Like oh, so I could get through it. But they still did a lot of exploring. Like particularly uh. One thing I remember, this was probably like something I found I found from the internet, like the first kind of big kind of like learning how to like do glitches in a game. Where this is something that's true of like the original the original release of the of the game, and is there is a trick you can do where if you hit select, which brings up the map, as you go to like the edge of a, of a level transition, when you like put down the map, you'll be on the far side of whatever the next screen is. So you can use it to skip past areas you can't normally get. But it does weird stuff to the game. Is because like, like it'll load the wrong sprites for stuff. You tamper with that uh, that duct tape behind the scenes on those old Game Boy games. And yeah, weird it, things happen a lot. Yeah, especially if you go into caves. Because the way I think, and I haven't looked this up, is like all of like. Anything that's like a building or like a cave is technically on the same map, and it just loads up the tiles. So like, oh, this is flagged. This space is flagged to house. Load up the house things. This flags the dungeon. Load up the dungeon tile set. But mm-hmm. like, you can use this to go around. And I remember using this, figuring out like how to go and using that to glitch and to get into some of the later dungeons. So I would get into the the dungeon. It would have the same layout, but instead of having like the dungeon walls, it would have load up the tile sets for the caves, and it like. We joked about it being, my brothers and I joked about it being the underground tower, just because we didn't understand what it was doing. Oh, I almost forgot I was going through, like, weird things in this game. It also has some weird racing humor in this game. Yeah, a little bit. Like, this, again, like, I stuff I didn't know until, like, thanks to, like, the uh, the cutting room floor, which is, like, a great wiki that, like, looks at, like, version differences cut content, difference between beta versions of various video games. They have an extensive section on this game. So uh, one of the differences is... Uh, so one of the places you can go to is this animal village, which has like a bunch of like talking animals. And one of the things, you have like this crocodile painter painting a hippo. And you'll go in there, and she'll like go from a standing sprite to a sitting sprite and just like kind of start wiggling. She's like, stop bothering me during the painting. Which I always thought was kind of weird. Turns out in like the Japanese version... She has, like, cartoon breasts. It's not a... It's still, like, completely G-rated. It's not, like, any details. But she's doing, like, a like a birth of Venus pose. And so she, like, covers herself. You drag home. Like, like oh, that explains... That explains. Because, like, the same sprite behavior is in there. So, but it always struck me as weird. And then the <laughs> other one is, like... 
So there's an item trade trading thing that eventually gets you required to be item beat the game, but which isn't entirely obvious when you start. But some of it, are, some of the trading you have to do in order to complete the game. So to keep you going through it, and John's just like, well, what's with this Yoshi doll? Whatever. Yeah. And like the mermaid in our version is she's missing her necklace. In the Japanese one, she's missing her top. That's um, yeah. That seems very yeah. Japan. And again, like, they keep the same sprite behavior. If, or if you dive near her in the American one, she's like, I've already looked there. And then she'll, like, move away from you. And it's like, that's weird. And the Japanese is like, hey, stop trying to look at me. And moves away. And it's just like, that seems very weird. Like, you'd, you'd never... I can't imagine seeing something like that in a Zelda game now. No. Yeah, and... But yeah, so... But yeah, so much to talk about in this game. Like, Marine is, like, really... Like, periodically... I mentioned periodically you'll get different people following you, and the, the most fun you, is Marine, who's like again this girl who's like similar to Zelda. And she's also the only person on the island that wants to leave the island. She wants to see the lands beyond. She talks about like how it was really cool to meet Link because she he's the first person who's like not just always been on the island. Mm-hmm. And she talks about wanting to be a seagull to sing, which is like a nice image, even though seagulls are not really known for their singing. But I, I get where they're going for with that. Yeah. But at one point, you actually need to take her to wake up a wal a sleeping walrus. Yep. Makes sense in context. But, like, they programmed a lot of stuff you can do with her. Like, you could just go straight to it, but, like, there's a lot of fun stuff you can do. Like, if you there are certain things she'll comment upon. Like, you can get an ocarina, which is a required thing. But, like, before you learn a song, like, Link pays it very badly. It's just <laughs> like, you're not very good at you. What? No, I didn't say anything. <laughs> she'll, like... Like, don't worry, if you get better to, later. Yeah. It, it, if you take her to, like, the uh, trendy game, which is, like, a crane game, she's like, oh, let me play it. And she'll, like, go and grab the operator and then get you kicked out. It's like, we don't like pro thing games. It's all sorts of fun stuff that, like, you'd never really see unless you actually, like, went out of your way to do it. Like, one that, like, took me a long time to discover is, like, if you... She's, like, the only person in the Zelda franchise to actually, like, Yell at you for breaking a po- breaking pots in people's houses. Yeah, yeah. If you she break gets one, real mad like, oh. at you about it. Yeah, but sometimes she'll say a different dialogue. Like, she's like, "Yeah, break them, break them all." And like, no, I didn't say that. It's I le- I legit when I first discovered this, I thought something was wrong with my game, and I immediately went and started doing breaking pots again. Like. Did, did I just hallucinate that to, like, do it again? And it's, like, a very rare chance. Like, I was, uh, I, I was revisiting it, and, like, I spent, like, five minutes breaking pots in a house to, like, to get it to show up. So, like, it's not something you're gonna see that very often. And it's just, like, one of the other things is, like, this cool bit that, like, you never, like, they put in this game, even though there's, like, 99% of the people are playing and aren't gonna see it. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's a game that has a red- ridiculous amount of attention given to every single detail like it's it's something that becomes much truer of zelda games moving forward um because the previous the previous ones you know zelda one was very like it was huge it was a big deal for what it was but nowadays we look at it and go oh that's your basic dungeon crawler rpg thing zelda 2 was hot garbage, and I think everyone will agree with that. Um, there, are, you, you'll find there are some people who defend that. I'm not one of them, but trust me. But uh, 
Link to the Past is kind of where the game really kind of set itself apart in a big way. Like, it took the Zelda 1 style and then just leapt forward with it. But in Link's Awakening, they're like, look, we can't do a world like that. We can't do two worlds. We can't have that expansive of a, of a game map. Um, we can't do all those mechanic things like that. We can. We have to be really small and compact. But that means we have the freedom to really dig in on the details. And that's something that's just stuck with this series ever since that I yeah. love. Yeah, I, I want to contribute a lot of it to this uh, this guy named Yoshiaki Kozumi. He is a designer, and he worked on like the script for this game. And there was a Wired interview with him uh, through uh, from uh, 2007. I can send you the link if you want to include the show notes. Where he talked about like how he was a protege of Miyamoto and like always wanted to include more uh, story and like Miyamoto famously is like not really interested in story in most of his games, mm-hmm. so you know kind of like sneaking it in behind the screen. Like he's also responsible for uh, the storybook scenes in the first Super Mario Galaxy game, yeah, which is like the o- the only thing that actually tells you about Rosalina's backstory. Yeah, yeah, and I think he also was like like a like got, like, more of a design role in charge of Majora's Mask, which is also a very weird Zelda game. So, sadly, like, it looks like he's mostly working as a producer, so I don't know how much direct influence he has, but, like, it, he had, like, it's a pretty impressive resume. So, we get through all the dungeons, we get all the required items and objects and self-discovery, and we go to wake up the Windfish. So, uh, t- tell us tell us about the Windfish from, from your side of this here. Yeah, so... Just to give some build-up, like, the further you get into the game, there's a lot of questions that get raised up on the nature of the island. Like, a lot of the bosses say, like, what are you doing? This island will disappear if you wake this up. And just, like, the owl will, like, talk about, like, like out of this and just, like, gives them, like, that this isn't a real place. This is a dream of the windfish. Yeah. So then, yeah, so once you collect all the instruments and you have to go through it and you play the, the Ballad of the Windfish, which is a song that... Marine sings pretty much throughout the entire game, and you learn on the ocarina. So you do that, and then so then you get into the egg, which is kind of a creepy place. Like it starts off like with like a pit that you have to fall into before you get into the dungeon mm-hmm. in in darkness. And like I, I remember like as a kid like trying to jump over that, and it's like there's surely there's got to be a solid place to land, and there isn't. And then you land in like basically a lost wood world wood style maze. That, like, you need to, in order to get through, you have to go through the trade ga- the trade sequence to get a magnifying lens, which will allow you to read a book in the uh, village library that will give you the directions. Yeah. And then, once you get to that, you get to the final nightmare, who, like, and this is really cool, he, like, shifts form to, like, all these different enemies. Like, he starts off as, like, a giant gel, changes to, like, a moldrum, which is, like, that big centipede thing, turns into, like, a version of Ganon, which is is interesting... And then to, for, before ending in this, like, weird one-eyed, like, monster thing that swings arms that, like, you have to shoot arrows. Or if you get the boomerang, you can kill him in one hit. But that's, like, a secret thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's when you... Yeah, so you beat him and just, like, get to the wind whip. It was, like, essentially, like, this weird giant whale with wings. It's it's a very weird design, but, it, like, I really like it. Yeah, it's definitely one of the stranger Zelda designs, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it still fits. It still works. It's a yeah. It is a weird little fish, but he's cool. Yeah. So it's like, thank you for waking me. It's like now it's time for us to both waken from dream. And then like it goes through like flashing through the various places on the island as it fades to white, and the island 
disappears and Link wakes up in like the ocean on like broken bits of ship and then like is woken up by hearing like the sound of like the ballad of the windfish and you know the ends like looking up at the sky and he sees the windfish going across the sky it was all a dream oh i feel yes and no i mean obviously it just thing but like i feel like link for link it really happened like this was a real island it was but it was like all kind of in this in like this like essentially like weird whale god things in mind and because like i like the, the things in it like have own original lives and things like the nightmare is like they're described as like actively invading the dream and like they don't want you to finish because of like because if like it wakes up they're gonna disappear too and it's this kind of weird like it's i think it just like kind of flashed in my head just like like this weird almost kind of morality thing just like is it right for you like to escape and just like condemn everything like that may have not existed it's and see for me my my whole theory is that this is this is link trying to figure out what he's supposed to do like this is all in link's head and he stumbles onto the windfish like the windfish is a real thing and it needs the hero to wake him up to free him from the to free himself from the nightmare and so it builds this island out of stuff that link is familiar with that's why you see someone like Zelda. That's why you mm. see someone in the Nightmares world like mm. Ganon. Because yeah. this is all designed to bring Link to fight the Nightmare. And all the dungeons are the Nightmare trying to fight back. And all the enemies are the mm. Nightmare fighting back. But it's all done within the concept, kind of the construct of this is all crap Link has had to deal with before. <laughs> so the Windfish frames it to him as like, Fine. You want self-discovery? You want to make sure you still have a place in the world? Mm. I'll give you that, but you're going to save me in the process. Mm. Okay, I didn't think about it. Like it, I was wondering, like, oh, like this is going to be like a dramatic difference, but I, I think we mostly agree with just like kind of like different interpretations of it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a really interesting game, and like one that like doesn't always get reference. Like, get, like Zelda likes doing con- all back stuff, past games, or like reusing ideas. You know, things, and, like, they've generally had a light touch with this. Like, I remember, like, being surprised when there was, like, a trophy for Marine in, like, uh, Smash Brothers Melee, I think? It was either Melee or Brawl. I can't remember which right now. I would I would love Did to it... see something from Link's Awakening show up in Breath of the Wild. Like, the yeah, song of the we... Windfish or something. Yeah. Weirdly, like, with, like, the, the, the Kevultation they've done references or done things that could be a reference to it, they go a different thing, like... In Majora's Mask, there's like a band's like, oh, our song is like the Ballad of the Windfish. It's like, oh, cool, they're gonna play the Ballad of the Windfish. And the song they play does not sound like the Ballad of the Windfish. No. Uh, Phantom Hourglass has a similar kind of premise of like a dream and like a similar dream whale, but it's like a completely different dream whale. It's like, but that could have been the Windfish. It's, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's just like considered like they want it to be special and they want it to be unique. Uh, I'm not with 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 the Zelda people. I never know. Like, they're so in their own world it's hard to tell yeah it's it's especially kind of hard to get stuff out of like japanese game developers because like sometimes they a lot of times like don't get asked about like these older games like there's a like i remember uh jeremy Parrish, who's like a longtime writer games writer like uh i recently went on trip to japan and he like interviewed a bunch of people and they're just like wow yeah we haven't been asked about these games in years because like no one thinks to do it and yeah. yeah like 
particularly in like I think like in a lot of like press environments, I've always heard that like gen like even if you're talking to like someone like Miyamoto or uh, Tezuka, who's like a longtime director there, like you'll maybe get like one or two questions about old games, but then like you have to start talking about the new stuff, and like there's just so much and like so much I want to know about these games, and it's hard to find because it doesn't exist. Jeremy Parrish also does like a video series called Game Boy World, which is a cron gaming project where he's playing through all of the the entire library of the Game Boy in chronological order. I think he's up to, like, 91. He'll do these videos, he'll do, like, a companion piece, and it's very interesting and fascinating if you want to know more about the Game Boy, and, like, some, like, real, like, a lot of obscure stuff that just went, like, either some gems or just, like, complete trash, because, like, boy, there's a lot of trash on the Game Boy. It's it's not nearly as much as on the original NES, which was just so full of garbage, but there is a lot of bad stuff. It's... It's a minefield. Yeah, pro tip if you're, like, doing going through the Game Boy's back catalog, if you see something that's based on an anime, run, because it's usually not very good. Yeah, Link's Awakening is also one of the few games that they actually, like, went back and made a color version of it for the Game Boy Color, Link's Awakening DX, which is mostly the same game with some added stuff. There is an added color dungeon, which, having played this morning, is, like, I can kind of take or leave. It has a very, like, it's kind of gimmicky and has a very annoying boss where his gimmick is, like, Oh, you like he changes colors, and if you get an under red to kill him, but like he'll also regenerate back up to blue, and just like, and that's it. And, like well, that's not especially clever, but it does have yeah. these cute photo opportunities you can get at certain points in the game, that like for different things, including like stuff with Marine, stuff with like, oh, I can't believe we almost went through this. You can like, you can steal items in this game, which is like a really cool thing you can do. Where there is, like, basically one shop in the game, and what you can do is you can pick up an item and just kind of walk around him, and his he'll turn to face you, but there'll be a slight delay. So if you go out the door when he's not looking at you, you can walk out with the item for free. But there are, like, two, two big effects that this happens if you do this. One, if you decide to go back into the store, you will be punished. Like, the store is like, I told you not to steal, and it'll play the boss music, and then he'll zap you with a beam that will, like, murder you murder you dead. Yeah. And then the and then the other thing it does is it changes your name. So, like, anytime someone would, like, say your name in the game, it's THIEF in all capital letters. Yeah, it's, uh, listen, Link's head has a strong morality feature. So, uh, I guess what we're trying to say is crime doesn't play because a shopkeeper could use murder magic to murder you. Yes. As we all know, the best shopkeepers are the magic shopkeepers. Well, James, this has been a ton of fun. Um, yeah. We're uh, we're getting down down on time here, so we're going to probably just wrap up real quick mm-hmm. here. Um, what is your favorite Game Boy game? Just like one sentence, run it down. What's your favorite? Everyone should go play this Game Boy game. Donkey Kong ninety four. Like it. It sometimes trades places Link's Awakening, but like it's a game that like I can always go back to. I can always, like, find stuff, because, like, particularly in, like, some of the early stages, like, if you go through and, like, using, like, the advanced techniques, you can get through super fast, so you can, there's always, like, a different way to play it. There's so much, there's, like, so much stuff to see, there's so many details, like, it, it manages to kind of tell a story, just, like, some of the back half of the stages, they start showing, like, the tower in the background getting closer to kind of, like, advance, and it's just very clever and very fun. It's, it doesn't take that long, like, it... Some of the puzzles are kind of tricky, but, like, I I think I, like, beat it on Sunday in just, like, about two hours. And admittedly, I was kind of messing up. Like, some I was kind of rusty on some parts of it. Well, James, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, where can people find you on the internet if they want to uh, to follow you? 
Uh, you can follow me at uh, on Twitter at Discord underscore Inc. Uh, I'm on a lot of the social media with the same thing, uh, like uh, Instagram, Tumblr, although I don't use that much right now. Mainly talking about vi- video games, uh, sometimes posting some drawings, mostly been kind of working on that. And talking about podcasts, want to get some good Game Boy Rex? Talk to me and like I'll mention stuff because there's a lot of stuff we didn't cover. Like we didn't cover Kirby, and which could be its own podcast. So I'm, I'm not going to go into that. You can find us on the internet at fifthdraw.com. Follow us on Twitter at fifthdraw, or email us at social at fifthdraw.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Hoodley. If you enjoyed this episode, why not give us a rating and a review, or maybe tell a friend? Getting the word out helps us immensely. Our music is Arcade Montage by Lee Rosevere and can be found at the Free Music Archive. That's all for this week. We hope you'll join us next week for another episode. And hey, thanks for listening. (laughs) 